current federal tax developments for the week of September the 13th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and Kaplan Financial Education. This week, we're going to take a look at some developments that have taken place over the week. And one of the keys, we're going to look at a couple of developments. First, the IRS did issue new high-low per diem and related guidance for the year. That's something that comes out this time of year. If you're making use of high-low per diem rates or have some of the special per diem rates like in transportation industry, something you've probably been waiting to see. We also got some clarifications on how we're going to report the leave time from COVID-19 family or just regular paid time off uh, under the federal government credit program on W-2s for this year. It's a little different than it was for 2020 simply because we have two different time periods. If you remember, there's going to be a limit that continues over from last year on the amount of paid leave one could have through the end of March. And then we have a second limit for, or a basically restarts the limits essentially for paid leave from the beginning of April to the end of September. And these numbers on the W-2 are primarily needed if an individual is a self-employed individual. Because again, self-employed individuals aren't allowed to, in essence, take more leave than they already had subsidized on their job. And that's part of why these rules are in place. And finally, hopefully the last time we're going to deal with this 51I1 issue, and we're not really dealing with it directly, but a question I've seen quite often over the past couple of weeks and been emailed on is, okay, we had this ruling come out on employee retention credits. The IRS says that if you're related, you know, if you are a controlling owner, essentially, unless you have no living relatives, you can't claim the employee retention credit on your own wages. Uh, let's say that we accept that ruling, which by the way, you should know I do. Uh, but if you do accept that ruling, uh, but a client had already filed a claim for refund where they had not taken that position, they'd have gone and included the owner's wages, are you required to file an amended return? which is a question that actually applies in a whole bunch of other contexts. So I want to kind of discuss the concept here. And we'll probably use a few examples from the 51I1 issue. Uh, but essentially, this is a more generic discussion. When do you have to amend a return? Or do you have to amend a return? And the answer, I think, is a little less cut and dried than we sometimes say. What I'll say is, as a practical matter, it's, I think, misleading to say either yes or no, but I would say also as a practical matter, the answer is closer to no than yes. So we'll just leave it at that, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But let's go ahead and let's get started, and let's talk about the new special high-low per diem rates that we have for this year. And these rates are rates that are outside of the general purpose per diem rates that we see published uh, for every individual area in the country for general trades and business. So we have a couple of special rules that come in here. Uh, if you're not going to be using those, if you're only going to reimburse incidentals, I haven't seen that done too often. But if you do, they talk about that here. And also the transportation industry gets a special rate. So we'll talk about that, all of which are governed here in this rule. Now, because these rules all reference back to the federal government's reimbursement rates, 
And because those go on the federal government's fiscal year, these rules tend to cover, although there's an exception, you can make it into a calendar year in certain cases. But generally, these cover the period from October 1st to September 30 each year. As we're approaching September 30, that means it's now time to trip over to a new set of rates. So also remember, if you're not using the standard high-low methods, using the special high-low method, that come the 1st of October, if you are just switching on the federal dates, uh, remember that you'll need a new set of rate tables for the various localities beginning on October 1st. And those, as I recall, are already out. The GSA has published them. So if your payroll system is set up for that, remember the swap date is coming. But let's talk about these new special rates. Now, the special rate for the transportation industry, right, for incidental, uh, for meals and incidental expenses, is going to be set at $69 inside the continental United States and $74 outside the continental United States. That's what you'll see CONUS referred to. And CONUS is the continental United States. That is the abbreviation used constantly throughout this. So if you see references to CONUS, that's what we're referring to. Now, if you only want to reimburse meals and incidental expenses, and again, remember, generally you can reimburse for you know hotels and meals and incidentals in one overall rate, you can reimburse for uh, meals and incidentals in a rate, or you can reimburse for only incidentals. And if you're going to do only incidentals, that's standard across the country, and that is $5 per day. That means you're probably requiring people, or just not reimbursing at all, for the amounts they pay for meals, business meals while traveling, you're not reimbursing them or you're forcing them to account directly for by giving receipts. The hotels, and to be honest, most organizations I've ever been involved with, either as a volunteer or been involved with as an advisor, they usually want the hotel, you know, they want that receipt because that's pretty easy to get. They are a little more willing to consider the per diem rates for meals because obviously, um, my theory on that, I think a lot of people's has been, if you actually say I need direct accounting for meals, uh, you tend to get much more expensive restaurants than if you do the whole meals and incidental per diem rate, and it's simpler to account for, so it's less messy. So generally, the cost theory on that is it's just as cheap to go ahead and reimburse at the standard rate, which is what most do. Now, that gets into another issue. Some companies don't like the fact that the standard meals and incidentals rate or the standard yeah, meals and incidental rate or even the hotel rate with it is tied to each specific locality. Now, as a practical matter these days, that's less of an issue than it used to be because those tables, you know, there are basically lookup sites on the web for the GSA that let you essentially put in a specific zip code and get the reimbursement rates for that zip code fairly easily, or even Excel files you can download if, you're, if your payroll system can integrate with that, that could give an automatic lookup, or at least you can translate those into something that your payroll system could use. So the IRS a few years ago tried to eliminate the high-low method. 
thinking, well, who in the world actually is still using this, given it's no longer the mess of having to go find an Iris paper publication and keep flipping through it all the time every time you're trying to reimburse a particular employee? Well, it turned out quite a few were, because Iris got a lot of complaints when they went to kill this. So this is still an option. You have to use it for everything. If you use it, but it's still an option. And if you want to use this, every locality, in essence, all localities are presumed to be low cost in the continent of the United States unless they are specifically identified in this ruling as high cost. If a locality is high cost, uh, the, you know, the substantiation rates are $296 for everything in a high cost locality, $202 for non-high cost, anybody else. And if you're just doing meals and incidentals, it's $74 if high cost, $64 if low cost. And again, they usually have, as they did this year, although there are very few changes this year, there are a few changes in high cost versus low cost localities. Uh, also some changes in time frames that impacted Sedona, Arizona, that actually go back to last year and pick up. Uh, it's a little bit weird there, but yeah, we got a few things going on there, so you know, that's there, but there are some changes in that list. Otherwise, you know, the list pretty much stays as it was last year. So if you're using these special high-low rates or you're in the transportation industry or you are just only reimbursing incidentals, uh, the, you know, new rates are there. And incidentals, I think, have stayed at $5 forever. So, but they're always mentioned here, so we always go back to them. Now, the other thing that we had as a development this week, and this week has been just about as boring as the previous week and the week before that, we haven't had a lot going on except for some movement in ways and means. So, and again, I don't like to get too deep into tax laws until I actually have a law to work with and one that is at least past one branch. And normally I even wait for two, and I really should have in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. There were some reasons why I moved on that one earlier, but, you know, because that one was radically different. What passed in the end in the conference committee had major differences from what was passed out of the House. So, again, you can keep an eye on that. I think you should be aware of it. Do I think you should spend a lot of time doing a deep dive on that sort of thing uh, and figuring out all the details and setting up specific plans for your clients? Probably not because those are likely to get derailed when they finally come through with whatever does pass. And again, I think under this situation, just to be clear, I think there's a reasonable chance nothing passes. In essence, this could be the Democrats' equivalent of repeal and replace, which you remember failed miserably uh, when they tried to pass that. My guess is this particular tax bill may just emphasize the divisions in that party. And in that case, they'll fall flat on their face because progressives won't vote for the bipartisan bill and the uh, moderates won't vote for the bill that the progressives want. And they'll each hold out and say they're only voting for the other sides. You know, basically, we're not voting for this uh, for various reasons, and they'll just dig in their heels and we'll get nowhere. So we'll have to see how it goes. But yeah, so again, I'm not wasting tons of time on that bill until it's clear there's something coming out of conference and that something coming out of conference has a reasonable chance of passing. So if you're thinking about talking about that this week, nah, I'm not going to talk much about that. 
But we did have notice 2021-53 issued on the 7th of of September. And what that gave us is it talks to us about how we're going to report W leave, you know, sick pay or family leave that is paid for under the Families First uh, Coronavirus Relief Act provision that was extended by the uh, year of end bill, the Comprehensive Appropriations Act 2021. And I know that there's a specific bill inside there that technically did it, but I figure you all know that end of year bill, and most people don't know the detailed names of all the other inside bills. So I'm just going to say the CAA extended it to March 31st, and then it was extended yet again to September 30, and in both cases, it was modified. One of the big modifications that was made this year is that granting this leave is no longer mandatory. Neither is, therefore, actually, then the credit, therefore, is one of those things that you might or might not claim, even if you're granting this leave. Some companies just didn't want to claim it. So, They gave us a little more guidance, plus because there are different rules through the end of March than there are from April 1st to the end of September, key ones being that the $10,000, or the basically not $10,000, I'm thinking about the ERC, the 10-day limit on this pay and the cap per dollar, the dollar cap, uh, those were extended and you counted the 2020 pay plus the pay you made in the first quarter of 21 all counted toward that initial cap. The second cap, the second time we just restarted those on April 1st. Also on April 1st, we expanded the category of things that qualify for leave to include uh, paid time generally for uh, vaccination-related issues, uh, which now the IRS has expanded even to giving employees time off in order to, let's say, take a elderly relative or someone else who may need, you know, transportation to be vaxxed to the vaccine location or who might develop a reaction and need some care. Uh, Those also qualify now. So because of that, we kind of have to divide if somebody got paid this leave, was it paid under the program through March 31st of 2021? Or did that credit get taken for the April 1st to June 30, or I should say to September 30 version of the credit? And remember, this credit dies the end of September, regardless of what happens to the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill, because this one was never meant to go to the end of the year. We always had this one run through September. So bottom line, at least unless they extend it, which is interesting, but not probably totally out of the realm of possibility uh, if you're following along with things on the COVID-19 front. Uh, You know, you may see that there might be a reason now that you begin to think that Congress might decide to extend this through the end of the year. We'll see what happens. I don't know, but I haven't heard anybody say they're going to do it. So what happens this year is you do have to tell the employees about the leave that you claim credit for and that, you know, that basically end when you claimed it. And it's really a problem only if they have self-employment income because nothing limits you from having five employers and getting this paid leave for 10 days from all five, right? That is perfectly acceptable. You can max it out on all five 
It does not matter that I got paid leave for one employer I work for. That doesn't disqualify me from paid leave for a second employer, even if for a different time period, a different part of the year. I just, you know, I quit this job, start another. That would get me a new 10 days under this rule. But it doesn't work for self-employment. Self-employment always says you can only get it if no employer got a credit on your wages. So we have to make that uh, information available to that employee. Now we can either put it in box 14 on the W-2 or we can use a supplemental document. But That document must be issued at the same time as the W-2 and we're going to be required in both cases to give employees detailed instructions about what this means. So we're kind of modifying the standard W-2 instructions that go in with the employee's W-2 to let them know how this is supposed to work. Key thing as to why we needed a new notice, because we had one last year, we need a new notice uh, to update the notice we had last year because the rules aren't the same. So you really, the big issue is you can't be using the same language or the same concept. Again, remember, there are two different time periods to report under, two time periods, two types of leave, the paid leave, the family leave, information about which one you chose. All of those, you know, particular issues are things you're going to be reporting. So because of that, this notice tells us about, you know, what we need to report. And really the major difference is dividing it up based on the different time periods so they know which one they were covered under. And you also therefore need to provide instructions to the employees. Now these instructions, the IRS gives you uh, what we should say are example instructions. These example instructions for all practical purposes don't really matter. Or I should say, well, I shouldn't say don't matter. They, you don't have to use them. However, if you don't use the example instructions, then, uh, you know, you basically have to make sure your instructions, you know, clearly communicate all of these issues. Let's be honest. The easiest thing to do is to just use the IRS instructions. Remember, though, because the language is not the same as last year, what you cannot do is simply go out and use last year's instructions. You know, you got to make sure your payroll system is updated with the new language and notice 2021-53. Don't just go ahead and run same as last year for whatever you did with notices. You need to make sure they're updated. The language is out now. Now would be a great time to get that updated in the system so you don't forget next January to update and don't give people the wrong instructions. Because again, that could lead to notices for them, which will probably not go over very well with them. We'll just phrase it that way. Okay, now let's talk about our final thing that we're going to talk about here today, which is our issue of when are we required to file amended returns? Now, again, I'm going to say this relates to Notice 2021-49 because that's where I'm beginning a ton of questions. You know, people, remember, we talked about this notice when it came out early August. And this notice pretty much went along with what I had discussed back in early April. We talked about, you know, was there a problem with what I termed at the time a splashback issue? If you are a majority owner of an S corporation or have a controlling interest in a partnership, and a partnership is not really a problem because you can't be an employee. So really the S corporation, C corporations are the two that have this problem. 
if I hold a majority interest in a corporation, do I have a problem with splashback, which will mean that my own wages don't count for ERC? Now, notice 2021-49, agreeing with what I wrote back in April, said essentially this is a problem. Why? 267C says that, and I should say, Section 51I1, the ERC back in Section 2301 of the CARES Act, you have to follow the bouncing ball here a bit, it specifically says rules like those found in Section 51I1 will apply to the ERC. Under Section uh, 51I1, what ends up happening is you're told there that you cannot claim the credit on any direct relative of the owner of the business. That's like for a sole proprietorship. Again, not our problem here. Or on somebody who holds a controlling interest uh, in an entity style. So and they have one for corp. They mentioned corporates and they mentioned partnerships. And the catch is the law says parenthetically at the end that this ownership is determined under the rules of 267C. Now, the relatives you cannot claim the credit for are a fairly long list under Section 154. Uh, D2 is where you'll find them, A through G. And there's a fairly long list there, but that list is not really our problem. Rather, 267C says that any shares I own in that, co in that corporation or any percentage interest in the partnership is deemed owned by any of the following relatives. And those relatives include my spouse, my brother or my sister, any of my ancestors, so parents, grandparents, or any lineal descendants, child and grandchild. The hitch is that list under section 154. If you reverse the relationship, right? So again, if somebody is my sister, then I'm that person's brother, right? Or if that's a brother, I'm that person's brother, right? That's how it work. If somebody is my, you know, parent, I then become a son, which again is a lineal descendant, right? Or if somebody is my son, then I become the father, so an ancestor, so the problem is that you have this splashback problem for anybody except a spouse. Any of the 267C-related family owners are going to be a problem because if they're deemed to own every share I own and I hold a majority interest, they hold a majority interest. If they hold a majority interest, I'm going to be on their list of relatives under 154 and that would mean that I am a relative of majority interest holder. Now, there had been a lot of discussion. Uh, some people had taken a position early on that, oh, no, 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 that, that, that only applies. There's nothing that denies its owners only to relatives, which I've always said is correct but misleading because uh, most people, a lot of people seem to stop there. I said, but you have to remember, Owner is defined by 267C ownership rules, and that's where our problem arises is 267C.
But in any event, a lot of people said no. A lot of CP instructors were telling people they believed it was no. A lot of authors were saying they believed the answer was no. Now, again, I was never impressed with most of that argument. And I'll be blunt in that regard, because I think almost every case, I would read the whole thing and go, where was 267C? And the answer was, nobody ever talked about 267C because, yeah, you know, that, that, that's kind of where the problem is, right? 267C. That's your problem. It's like, you know, kind of talking about the problem of, you know, diving out of an airplane without a parachute without talking about the impact with the ground. Well, there's no real problem till then. Uh, and this was the same problem. If you ignore 267C, yeah, there was no problem. But the law said 267C, and 267C specifically has this deemed ownership rule. And again, it, it's really interesting because it's really tough to see. You have to do some working to find the situation where you're assigning it to somebody because even your spouse becomes a problem because if you have any kids, then your spouse is going to find that they're, you know, while they're 100% owner, okay, great. Um, and you don't have reattribution, so then they need to worry about the fact that their ownership would splash onto the relative. The problem is they're going to probably have the same prohibitive relationship that you have with one of those parties. And that's going to make it into a bad relationship problem. So, again, it's really tough for the spouse. Now, notice what happened here was, notice 2021-49 said exactly what I said back in April, which is that, yeah, um, owners, unless you have no living relatives, you cannot claim the ERC on those wages. That's end of day. And we had the nice long discussion, tax Twitter. Uh, Dan Choden, I have a reference to Dan's starting of a thread Back in, uh, I think it was February, was when he started the thread, uh, you know, that went through this discussion. I also had discussions uh, at a similar time uh, with various other people regarding this issue, uh, some of whom were taking the position that it was okay. And so I had some back and forth with a lot of people on this issue. And again, I had come to the conclusion, and, you know, I stick with it, that I, you know, I, I can listen to the other, listen to the alternative arguments, but I never accepted. I said, I don't think they meet it. And okay, fine. In any event, notice 2021-49 comes out. Now some people who may have filed those things are worried, should I go back and amend the return? So let's discuss the issue of, is there actually a quote unquote duty to amend? Or are you required to amend? Well, as I said, I, I think a simple yes/no answer is at best misleading, because I think one of the problems we get into is what, and I think the most important question to ask yourself is what does your client believe required means? Because I think quite often it's like, okay, what exactly do you mean by required? Obviously, you're not required to do anything, at least if you don't mind spending time in the federal pen, you know. So if you don't mind spending time in the federal pen, you can violate any law. And again, yeah, you know, you're not required under that theory, you're not required because there is the alternative, serve time in the pen, assuming you're convicted. So probably I think everybody would agree that if that was a penalty, you'd be required. But okay, 
So I'm, I'm okay, we go there. But we're not talking about that in this case, except in the case of tax fraud. If we're in the case of tax fraud and you're not an attorney, you probably need to refer this to, an, to counsel very quickly because you are not going to have any sort of privilege for anything that they tell you at this point. And again, if it becomes a criminal tax issue, they're going to depose you and they're going to try to use your testimony against the client. Or secondly, more likely, try to flip the client against you to pressure you to, yeah, you know, as you go. But you have no right to withhold that data from uh, basically CID. Uh, when the IRS, you know, goes, or should say the Justice Department, you go to trial, you're going to have to testify on that issue, right? There is no privilege in that realm. They will be able to uncover it. But let's say that's not really the issue. So let's talk about then basically what are the key decisions. And as I say, I think the practical answer is no. But with a caveat of, but make sure your client understands what's meant by no. Because there are some negative consequences, or at least consequences they will very likely consider negative, they are exposed to if they do not come forward and amend. So let's go with that. So let's assume we have a position on the return. And the IRS has come out with a contrary ruling, which in this case, let's say they would have. Now, we probably, and yes, as a professional, do I need to notify my client? Yes. If I know they have taken a position that the IRS has now come out in something in the Internal Revenue Bulletin that is contrary to that position, and especially if I was involved in advising them to take the contrary position, I would say there is a duty to tell the client, yeah, there's this return. You need to understand the IRS has now come out and taken the exactly opposite position. Because as a practical matter, if there is an exam and if that and if the issue comes up, you're not going to see, unless the agent is incompetent and has no understanding of what's going on, you know, or something of that sort, if the actual issue is on the table, an agent's not going to go against a national office, and it's wildly unlikely an appellate conferee will go against national office on this issue unless you could show them some case they've lost on other issues, and certainly counsel's office will not advise them to go against it because counsel's office approved this in almost certainty. So bottom line, your client needs to understand that if this gets raised, they will probably be facing, you know, an assessment of tax plus interest, and conceivably they might face penalties. Now, what most people, if you read the articles, and it was an article in a Forbes article in a Forbes column a few weeks ago and a couple of other places that, that we've seen this, what they usually are looking at is is there going to be a penalty? assessed against the taxpayer if they fail to amend. So if that's your criteria, let's talk about what that criteria would mean. Basically, I think a client's going to be very, very safe from a penalty if one of two things can be shown to be true. Uh, did the taxpayer file the original return or claim for refund after taking reasonable steps on their end, based on their knowledge, their education, right, to attempt to determine the proper treatment under the law. And to be quite honest, in most cases, that type of proper action would be asking their tax professional, who appears to have the background and the capability to be able to answer this question, 
to advise them on the issue. So if they can show that, they took that reasonable step, they were advised this is okay, and then they act on that in good faith, and that's a little important note I'll make here about good faith in this kind of category. They act on that in good faith, uh, then they should not have a problem with a penalty. Okay? Now, the advisor might have a prepare penalty problem, but that's a separate problem right now and not one the client needs to worry about. That's not their problem, nor should it be their problem. So I want to make sure you're clear on that. Um, now, what I say, what I mean by good faith, it's not good faith if the client was told by their advisor that the owner can't claim it, and then they started searching for an advisor uh, who would say it was okay. And they went to five people. Number six finally said the answer they wanted. They decide to go with number six. That shows a lack of good faith because you are doing what I term opinion shopping. I know the answer I want. I will just keep going from professional to professional to professional until I get that answer. Opinion shopping, not good faith. As well, it's not good faith if you know or have reason to know that that individual is not truly a tax expert. This is less likely to be a problem, but it can be. And there are some cases where taxpayers need to realize that the indication is it's not good faith. Uh, and I guess the, the other main one, because again, you know, so I'll put it this way. If you are a tax attorney with 30 years experience, you can't go ask, you know, somebody straight out of college you know, who's never done a work of tax in their life and maybe, but they've got their CPA or EA uh, license, they got it the day before, to rule on this issue, you're that's not going to be good faith, okay? In essence, you, you were able to make that call. You're just trying to find, you know, somebody to be the fall guy to do this. Um, the other problem you can run into is if you know the advisor has a bias. So if your advice came from somebody who was, let's say, one of these various groups that were promoting, uh, you know, you know, going out there and getting people, which is just fine. It's what, you know, you can do. But they were out there, you know, selling you with these services uh, to go ahead and pursue this credit. And they were going to take a portion of the credit to, you know, as their pay. Obviously, they have a bias to increase that number as much as possible, including, at least in theory, taking aggressive positions and hoping you won't be examined. So that might also be deemed not a good faith reliance if you rely on somebody who has a vested interest in that number coming back. So you always have to be aware of that. That goes back to, was neonatology case, I believe it was, where that got done in the tax shelter. The second way you can avoid penalties is if the taxpayer's original position was a supportable position based on the authorities you had at the, you know, Taking into account, you know, if the position, whether the position was or was not disclosed on A275 or A275R at the date the claim was filed. So if you have substantial authority as of that date and you, you know, and basically you didn't disclose or if you did disclosure and you have reasonable basis, then you're probably okay. Now, my bottom line on this rule is, is for almost anything, unless the uh, position is so far off the wall that it's obviously frivolous, I think an A275 will always get you the protection. 
of getting out of the penalty because the burden is pretty high on the IRS to show as long as you've got some theory that reasonably ties to some analysis, right? Um, you're probably going to have at least the reasonable basis. So as I say, I, I don't see that as a, I see that's fine. The problem more likely is though, most people that filed this way did so without disclosure. That forces you to substantial authority trick, which is tougher. But again, I think most clients are covered by the first one here. You know, they went to an advisor, they were advised to do it, and therefore not a problem. But there is a second issue. As an advisor, we have to be worried about that because under, you know, the problem here under 6694A, we can be penalized a minimum of $1,000 or if more, one half of the fee we were paid for the advice that led to the, uh, you know, the unsupported result. If the position did not have substantial authority or if disclosed did not have at least a reasonable basis. And this opens up a potential conflict of interest between the advisor and the client. This is one to watch out for. The problem is, if you were not involved with the advice, it's probably going to be, it would take me zero time whatsoever to raise the defense that these guys relied on the advice of a competent advisor. And as soon as the service tried to say, well, th that advice was wrong, I said, irrelevant. If the client had no idea the advice was wrong, they acted in good faith, and the advisor had the apparent, you know, background to render this advice they acted in good faith they did what a reasonable person should do they should not they are don't worry about penalizing them under the rules you know for negligence or disregard of the rules because one other reminder substantial the whole substantial understatement rules only apply to income tax returns so in reality we talk about the substantial authority rules or the um, reasonable basis rules, they only apply to the penalties on the advisor in this context as a payroll tax issue, not on the taxpayer themselves. So the mere fact that the amount of the, pen the, amount of the uh, dispute may be well over $5,000, especially if it's a 2021 uh, one, it probably would be over $5,000 if there was more than one, well, even with one quarter involved, it'd be 7,000 in many cases. Uh, that doesn't matter, but, you know, it still, though, will get them out of any question about a penalty by saying, hey, it doesn't matter. Now, the advisor, of course, is more exposed on this, so the advisor may want to keep fighting for the reality that this is okay and there was no problem, or continue to fight the question of whether there was substantial authority or reasonable basis, which is, as I said, irrelevant as long as the taxpayer just got the relevant advice. The more likely rule is that the advisor will continue to try to fight the uh, underlying support for the position and not necessarily communicate to the client that if you bailed out right now, you'd pay this much dollars in tax, this much in interest, and as long as you throw me under the bus and say I relied on the advisor, nothing in penalties. And it may very well be that that appears to the client to be the best way to handle this, to get them out of spending all the time and effort and time away from their business that's involved with an IRS exam, plus the stress. 
So be careful on the conflict, especially if you were the advisor. Make sure that you tell the client up front about these options, or even better, find somebody else to handle the exam. Right? Go ahead and do that. Again, the odds of the IRS pursuing you for a prepared penalty, let's be honest, they're not great. Uh, but advisors get really worried about that. So again, but I, I just kind of do it. The other problem, though, is that your risk is not just from the IRS. The other danger an advisor faces is that taxpayers don't tend to like IRS exams. They are not good, you know, happy, enjoyable experiences, even if they result in no change. There is a potential liability to, a, to an advisor, and this is why it's really important to mention 2021-49. If you, you didn't advise the client about the fact that this position you were suggesting might lead to an exam, right? And it would lead to an exam where the service will not back down unless we got all the way into court, and very possibly, because the IRS want to keep fighting this, we'd at least have to fight it all the way to the Circuit Court of Appeals, which gets very, very expensive and probably is not cannot be justified from a cost-benefit basis if that exam gets going and we try to fight this even if we would win. Again, that's the catch because attorneys and other advisors are going to charge for that representation. And assuming that the courts don't find the IRS position you know, totally unsupportable, uh, you're probably going to be stuck with your legal fees. So, again, there are ways to try to work around that, but not necessarily the best. And, you know, a lot of it depends on some ways of trying to shut that down by making a qualifying offer, which in the end is going to have to be more than the court decided to finally uh, hand you down. And that kind of goes against the whole bias of saying it should be nothing, right? We, we really didn't owe anything. You know, that's, you know, you're not going to want to make a qualifying offer because if you offer a dollar too little, it wasn't a qualifying offer. So we get into that whole background. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a risk to understand that an advisor, you know, advise a client, look, this is out there. It is possible, especially if it's a one-person S corporation, let's say, or one person or a C corporation with one owner, and that's the only person, that 100% owner from Schedule E on the 1120 is the only person who got a W-2. Uh, that also makes it pretty clear who the ERC had to be for. You know, you might say, look, you know, you could very well be examined on this. And if you were, then you're likely to be charged. You know, you're, this exam would open up and either we'd have to fight it by going to court or you'd have to pay this amount of tax and interest. And this is where we get to the issue of what does the client consider required? You might say if there's no penalty, right, we get the penalties and we just pay the tax and interest. Uh, well, yeah, that, that's not a problem at all. Why wouldn't we go? Why wouldn't we go that route? Well, only a minority of the population understands the concept of time value of money. And if you ever tried to explain it to somebody who was not in finance or accounting, you tend to see their eyes glaze over and they focus just on the fact that they got charged X dollars more because, you know, we, we didn't go back and pay this off a year ago. And instead, remember, especially for the for the last set of 2021 ERC credits, that's a five-year statute with interest compounded daily. So, you know, they might say, wait, here's all this interest, which is more than the tax after the time period we finally get the exam done. And, you know, hey, wait, you know, you should have told me about this, right? That's where we go. And the client may very well consider that even at relatively low interest rates 
They're not going to say, well, look, you had use of the money all those years. They're just going to focus on the fact they paid more. And to be blunt, courts often go along with that theory. Only a minority of courts tend to assume in this type of damage situation, uh, essentially, they, they'll accept that whole, well, they had the money, so it wasn't really damages. They'll kind of go along with the, with the interest. So you got to be careful there with how clients do, or clients will file with the state board. And again, the complaint will be that they were given bad advice because they were never told about the potential downsides of taking this position or not fixing the item. So bottom line, we have an issue. What do we do right now? And again, it's not just 51I1 and the, and the, basically the ERC. It's also any position you get where a position's taken and then maybe a court case comes out later, the Supreme Court rules something, right? You know, something happens, IRS issues a revenue ruling, something that clearly is at odds with the position taken. Um, I think what you have to do is kind of, first thing you should be doing is obviously notifying the client of the exposure. This is probably the major thing you want to do, right? But you're going to have to explain to them some issues. So what you want to do is um, you want to determine what level of authority actually existed at the time the claim for refund or the tax return was filed. What was the actual available authority on that date? Remember, when this 941X was filed today, you know, back, let's say, in April, there was no notice 2021-49. However, that doesn't mean automatically that anything goes. Rather, what you had was the code and to a lesser extent, committee reports. As we discussed last week, I told you about the issue with committee reports about having to show ambiguity. But it's up to you to analyze what was there and determine, was there substantial authority for the position on the return, right? Or was there reasonable basis? Now, again, that probably doesn't matter for the client for the penalty, but it does matter for any potential penalty to you and if there is an exposure to you but not the client because you gave the advice, uh, you probably have an issue here of the potential conflict issue. At the very minimum, you're going to need to disclose to the client and then make a decision as to whether you can continue to represent the client in the issue. Once you know about this issue and you know what support you had back then, you're going to advise the client in 2021-49 or whatever other contrary authority was that triggered your issue on the position. And you'll explain to them the exposure this gives, the fact that if we go to court now, this notice will be there. We can point out it wasn't there when he under, did the transaction, but the court may still consider it persuasive, and it's likely the IRS will stick with it because, of course, the IRS position is this just states what was, quote, clear from the law. They just, you know, gave the pure clarification here. And they certainly never said in here that early, if you claimed it on an owner earlier, there's no problem. So I think we have to discuss this issue with the client, discuss the support for the position that existed back when we did this, and discuss the potential positives and negatives, you know, and I should say of a many return. The obvious negative is you'll pay the tax. Uh, the positive is, you know, you could escape. You almost certainly will escape penalties by amending it. And you'll also reduce any interest that would be due because, if you amend it today, we cut off the interest now. If you wait and get examined, especially for a third quarter or fourth quarter, if we have those, ERC, 
then you're going to have you know potentially up to five years of interest compounded daily running on the balance. So you know there is that cutoff issue. What you would do, right? And the next step is okay, great, we got that done. Now, what are you going to do about claims for refund you're filing today? You know, your client now says, well, what should I do about my third quarter 941? Right? You know, I'm going to be filing a third quarter 941 here in October. Uh, you know, do I claim the owner is there? I've been doing it all along. Why, you know, it was okay, you know, let's say, you know, prior to this notice, we did it all the way through the second quarter uh, before the notice came out. Uh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, can't we go ahead and do it that way on the third quarter? And there you got to have a different discussion. 2021-49 now exists. So when you're giving advice, you've got to consider 2021-49 the mix. And while 2021-49 is not authority, is not, i got to make it, it's authority for the purposes of our testing for substantial authority, reasonable basis. It's not absolutely something that always will determine. And in fact, it's a lower level of authority than regs, right? Certainly lower than the code, lower than regs, um, you know. So it's there, but it may very well be granted some deference by the courts. It gets more interesting these days with the Chevron rule and some of the odd things about when or when not they when or when they won't accept the you know deference to the IRS, but it's very possible that the court will find this persuasive, uh, and clearly after aug early August you were on notice that this was the IRS analysis. So if you want to continue taking the position, you're going to have to specifically come with a reason why this notice is invalid. You know, at least a reasonable argument about its validity to bring that into question and then use that to at least with disclosure uh, claim it. Or flip side of that is, because again, as an advisor, you'll say advise to do it with disclosure or you're going to have to come up with the fact that it is so bad and the, this ruling is so far off the mark that there is actually substantial authority for the alternate position. As I say, I do want to be clear. I would say there's, I see no way to get there to say there's substantial authority for the opposite position. But again, I don't decide these things. Judges do, right? Ultimately, nine judges sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court would have, be the only people who could make the final, final call on that issue. So be aware of that as to how that would work. You know, is this really an invalid interpretation of the law? But I think you advise the client on that. Again, the client does not have to amend prior returns. They can. You should advise them of the advantages to that. Now, after you've advised them on the fact that, you know, there may not be support now or the support now is more likely to be challenged, uh, can you then raise the question of how likely it is to be examined? Yes. You cannot use the likelihood of examination as the sole reason not to touch the returns. You cannot use the likelihood of examination as the sole reason. Tell a client, don't worry about it. Don't worry about this. It's not a problem. Right? That's not a valid, you know, again, that's not going to really work for you. But as long as you've discovered, right, that at least there is a, you know, 
it's okay to file the return this way. Not okay, but at least we could disclose, and we would have a position that might be overturned by the courts, that might be you know hit by the IRS. It still has at least a reasonable basis with disclosure. Then we can start talking to the client about the chances of exam. That is a valid discussion once you've completed your analysis of the validity of the position. You know, is the position supportable? Where do we stand at this point? Would you be penalized if the exam took place? And as I say, the other thing to be clear on, as I've noted, make sure the client understands the risk of taxes and the concept of compounded daily and how that would impact things depending upon how long it takes an exam to get resolved. As I said, the five-year statute does not apply to ERC prior to the third quarter of 2021. So those earlier ones are under a standard three-year statute. This quarter that we're in right now is a five-year statute, and with the way daily compounding works, that's going to make the interest a lot worse if the IRS comes in late in the game to raise this up and then come in much later on that. So that's how I would approach that, just so you know, you got the idea down. That's how that works. So this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of, uh, you know, for the week of essentially September the 13th, 2021. Current federal tax developments brought to you by Kaplan and by your state side of CPAs. Uh, as I do, I tend to pay attention to postings on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Washington. You know, keep an eye on those. Also watch Idaho's postings, uh, Minnesota to some extent too. Uh, the postings on IDASOs, which is not Connect, but very similar concept for their discussion groups on there. Uh, also, you can email me, edzollerscoverfortaxdevelopments.com. Uh, I will be doing some, I'm not going to go back on the road now because, hey, you know, we're coming up on all the deadlines. Uh, so my next time to be showing up somewhere will be after the 15th of October. And the way this year is working, I'm doing a combo currently of in-person events and uh, webinar events, or and many of them are that are in-person are also being simulcast at the same time. So we have these from a lot of different directions as they go up. So I will be doing those, but obviously that's going to come in a couple of weeks. So just beware, keep an eye on that. Otherwise, uh, you know, take care, have a good time, and we'll come back here next week to talk about more current federal tax developments.